1: Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about the proclamation to the world and the family. And this is our last podcast for the Doctrine and Covenants year. But we hope that you keep listening because the next time we get together, we will be covering Moses chapter 1 and Abraham chapter 3. And we'll be starting a journey in the Old Testament. So we're really excited about the Old Testament. Bryce, why don't you talk to us about the proclamation and why you think it's important? And most of this podcast is going to be Bryce breaking this stuff down because, quite frankly, he's thought about it a lot more than I have.
0: Well, let me lay all my cards on the table. This came out in September of 1995. It's been 26 years. And I will be totally honest that no Scripture, no block of Scripture, no text, no piece of paper has been nearer and dearer to my heart than the proclamation on the family. Let's start by putting it in big picture. I want to talk about the duty of prophets, seers, and revelators, why we have prophets, seers, and revelators. The Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33, Again, the word of God came unto me, saying, Son of man, Speak unto the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of that land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, His blood shall be upon his own head. That's the reason we have prophets, seers, and revelators. They are watchmen, and President Nelson is our watchman on the tower. And we call them seers, and the job of a seer is to be a seer. Russell M. Nelson is a seer, and his job is to see the enemy coming when he's yet afar off. Now, it's one thing for an individual prophet, seer, and revelator to see an enemy coming and to raise the warning voice. So, notice he says he blows the trumpet. How would an individual member of the Quorum of the Twelve, say a David A. Bednar, who sees an enemy coming,
1: blow his trumpet? A lot of times I when I hear them speak, they say, may I suggest this? And then they'll give counsel. I see that a lot, right? So
0: it's them giving counsel. That's how they blow their trumpets. General conference talks are prophets,
1: seers, and revelators
0: saying, I see something coming and I'm blowing my trumpet. You need to be warned. But then when they all see it and there's a major danger... How do they come together and as a united body of prophets, seers, and revelators, blow a combined trumpet so that we hear, this is a major voice? May I suggest that's where proclamations come in. Major declarations where the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the First Presidency blow their horn. The Lord called forth the first proclamation when the saints were in Nauvoo the church has issued six proclamations. The fifth proclamation is the proclamation on the family. The sixth proclamation was done at the Bicentennial of the First Vision to proclaim that the restoration has occurred. But among those six, I would say that one stands out as a little bit different. Not only have they issued a proclamation, not only have they made it an entire week on Come Follow Me, but they've made it a required institute class and a core class at all of our church schools. It's called the Eternal Family, and it's an entire course built on the proclamation. That emphasis alone has caught my attention. So these prophets, seers, and revelators see something coming that's so dangerous I think they are blowing the loudest trumpet they can. And may I suggest that the greatest danger they see coming, the greatest problems you and I will face in our lifetime have to do with the disintegration of the family. That is hands down the greatest concern in our day.
1: Hence this proclamation. I think we should listen. Clearly, it's significant because in our day, we obviously have issues and the family's under attack. From my perspective, I remember when it came out, to me, it wasn't something that was that earth shattering. And then since that time, the whole world's changed culturally. So clearly, it's significant. What do you do with its structure? How do you break it down? So there's three
0: parts the proclamation has prophetic declarations, prophetic warnings, and prophetic counsel. Three parts. I promised Mike that I would put my personal notes. I have a blank copy of the proclamation, and I've taken pen to paper. It's actually electronic, but I promised Mike I'd throw this into the show notes, which I'll do. And so, you'll see three main colors. One color, you'll notice is my orange color, and that's what I call prophetic declarations. So, let's just take a minute on some of the prophetic declarations. The Scriptures kind of dance around some core doctrines. They don't really come out and state it, And so I think part of the purpose of this document is to declare these things, that we declare, and here's one, the very end of the first paragraph, they declare that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. Now, we teach that all the time, and the scriptures certainly hinted that, but you really can't say book, chapter, and verse quotes that. And so, I just see them wanting to say, let's put in our documents a clear statement that says, the family is central. And then notice the next one. Latter-day Saints know that we believe in a mother in heaven. We know that, and, and we do talk about her. But there's really very few places in our canon that you can point to to say there's an official document that declares that we are children of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. So they do that in the proclamation. They proclaim definitively all human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved son or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. That is a profound prophetic declaration. Bryce, I don't know if anybody else is talking like this. No. Show me anywhere that anyone is proclaiming the literal parenthood that we have a father and a mother in heaven.
1: Yeah, I I don't know anywhere. In fact, even the idea of being in the image of God, we've talked about this before, Bryce, but in traditional Christianity, that was lost. It became a metaphor. And so we have a prophet, 14 years old, walking out of a grove of trees that says, I've seen them, father and son. So sometimes I wonder if he's seen more. I love that Joseph's in Nauvoo teaching that we have a heavenly mother, and I'm glad that's part of our doctrine. And I'm grateful that the proclamation makes it
0: an official part of our core document. It's right there. The other part of this is that, so that's That's going back into premortal life. But now let's go all the way into the future. This document declares very definitively, the divine plan of happiness enables family relationships to be perpetuated beyond the grave. And then it even adds to the fact that because of sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples, it is possible for individuals to return to the presence of God And for families to be united eternally. So there's our declaration that not only is the family central to the Father's plan, but we are all one big family with God and Heavenly Mother at the head of the family. And the purpose of that family is to perpetuate our individual families into eternity. That's a prophetic declaration. Another wonderful declaration is in the fourth paragraph that they declare, prophets, seers, and revelators have declared that the first commandment, the very first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve, meaning multiply and replenish the earth, remains in force. In other words, every single human being is still under this same commandment to multiply and replenish the earth. Heavenly Father relies upon us to bring about His plan, that His plan won't go forward for others if we don't help participate in that plan and provide bodies for His spirit, sons, and daughters to inhabit. They then make another declaration that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. That this whole idea that the world has grown into that the Ten Commandments and chastity and fidelity in marriage are outdated, they definitively declare that is not true. That the sacred powers of procreation are only to be employed between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. That's a declaration. They then declare, speaking of man and woman, what are their responsibilities? This is a prophetic declaration of parental duties. So, the next paragraph, husband and wife have a solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. And then specifically, their sacred duties are three things. Number one, rear their children in love and righteousness. Two, provide for their physical and spiritual needs. It is my duty as their father to make sure they have the necessities of life. And three, teach them. And the proclamation actually gives three things that parents must teach their children. Here is a prophetic declaration of what parents need to teach their children. Number one, to love and serve one another. Number two, observe the commandments of God. And interestingly, number three, to be law-abiding citizens. That's a fascinating declaration of parental duty. I will be held accountable to God for those responsibilities. And then we have another declaration, which I love. Children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity.
1: To me, when it says that children are entitled, I don't hear of prophet seers, and revelators talking a lot about I'm entitled to certain things. I mean, that should draw our attention, Um, because but they're not a lot of times talking about how we're entitled to things, are they?
0: No, that's not often something that you find in prophetic writings. But here it is. But this is a powerful one, that children are entitled to birth within the bonds of matrimony and to be reared by a father and a mother who honor marital vows with complete fidelity. That sentence is such a powerful declaration from prophets, seers and revelators and defines what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is about. That children have that right. And that my job as their father is to make sure those rights are kept sacred. That they are reared by a mother and a father who honor marital vows with fidelity. So those are some of the great prophetic declarations. You're going to find others this week as you read the proclamation, but would you highlight them? I would encourage you to highlight, as I have done, declarations
1: of truths.
0: This is the law written on the tablets.
1: Yeah. This reminds me, these declarations of the foundation stone in the temple and it was the first place where you measure everything. And then Paul's going to say things like, Jesus is the cornerstone, the place where we start to measure. And then you got Joseph Smith saying, if you start right, you finish right. If I really believe this stuff and I really try and live it, and that's going to be my starting point, I'm going to get so many other things right. But the reverse, if I don't do this, if I don't see this and procreation's up for grabs, and all these things are just kind of whatever we define them as, then we get confusion. It's almost like we're starting with the basics so that we can get the big things right. Right. And that's why I love the proclamation
0: is because they have definitively given us a document that very clearly states the foundation. Here are the declarations that really do define the starting point. So if you don't start right, you can imagine how you're going to end. And therefore, we have prophetic warnings. Here's the end result. If your life is not in harmony with these prophetic declarations, if you walk down a different path, here's what's going to happen. First, to the individual. We warn, the last two paragraphs are the warnings. We warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, number one, who abuse spouse or offspring, two, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities, three, will one day stand accountable before God. The very first question God's going to ask me will be about my relationship with first my wife and then each one of my children. Did I keep my covenants? Was I faithful, and did I provide and faithfully fulfill my responsibilities to each one of my children? I will stand accountable to God for the discharge of my responsibilities. And then they add, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. The biggest problem they see is the disintegration of the family.
1: By the way, I would throw this out there that when it says the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets, for me, the way my brain works, Bryce, is that's an invitation to try to match those up. So in other words, go into the scriptures, look at the warnings of ancient prophets, and then listen to modern prophets. And as you see the connection... I think what they're trying to do is invite you to go and make that connection, That's right. right.
0: The challenges that others have prophesied are coming are coming. So last paragraph, we call upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to start right, to promote those measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. So, Mike, may I suggest that that last sentence drives us to the third, the most important portion of the proclamation, prophetic counsel. I think the gold of this proclamation is written in one sentence. There's wonderful things about that fathers preside and provide and protect, that mothers nurture, and I love that it defines that fathers and mothers do this as equal partners. Our definitive declaration is that fathers and mothers are equal partners. All these wonderful declarations. But to me, the screaming out part of this proclamation is in one sentence. And so forgive me if we spend the rest of this podcast on this one sentence. After spending 26 years pondering every word, every sentence, every aspect of this document, I always come back to this sentence. It says, Successful marriages and families are established and maintained, and then it lists nine principles. Now I'm guessing every one of you listening at some point in whether your it was your college experiences or high school or professional or business Every one of you have had assi- an assignment where a group writes a document. you remember those days? Do you remember college when you were got into a group of five and the five of you had to write a document? Do you remember how challenging it was for all five of you to agree on what to say and how to say it? And sometimes I, mean, I remember spending hours discussing one word or one sentence or, no, I don't want to say that, or I don't think that's part of our document.
1: Bryce, in one of my college classes, I one time had a colleague say this to me. He said, Mike, this group work's killing me. Like we can't get people to do it. And then he said to me, when I die, I want to have my pallbearers be my fellow classmates so they can let me down one more time. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so hard to relinquish control and let other members of the group do parts? Because, you know, I'm sure you feel this way. I could do it better, right? Yeah. So that being said, the whole
0: reason I bring this up is to ask this question. What is it going to take for 15 educated, brilliant, wonderful prophets, seers, and revelators to agree on a list of nine principles that make marriages successful? Can you imagine the discussion, the debating, even the disagreement that went into that list of nine. They probably talked about it a bit. Now, did it grow to 20? Did it shrink to five? Why those nine? There is no way this is a random list. This is a well thought out list. And I can only imagine the number of hours that it took to agree. Here are the nine principles upon which successful families are built. So I take that as such a serious invitation to change. So let's digest these nine. Now, I would suggest to you they come related to each other. They come in three pairs and a triplet. The first two are a pair. The second two are a pair. The next three are a triplet. And then the last two are a pair, and they balance each other out. The brilliance of these nine is in the pairing. So, the very first two on the list are faith and prayer. In other words, your family, your marriage will never be successful unless God is a part of it. Family requires faith. Marriage requires faith. Jumping into marriage and trusting someone else requires faith. Having a baby requires faith. And so, the very first listed item is we have to have faith. We have to trust the promises, not just provided in this proclamation, trust that these declarations are true, and that my greatest responsibility is to participate with Heavenly Father in bringing spirits into this world, and that I need to fulfill my responsibility, and I can fulfill that responsibility. We trust that. We hold on to the promises. Now, we could spend another hour talking about faith, but we're not going to. But may I suggest that you ponder why faith is listed first. You cannot have a successful marriage without faith. The faith we place in each other, the faith we place in God. Now, the pair is prayer, communicating regularly with Him. How does prayer become an essential quality in my family? individual prayer, as I ask Heavenly Father, how do I fulfill my responsibilities better, and invoking His blessings upon my family. If the prophets, seers, and revelators are seeing that the disintegration of the family is coming, they are also saying that the solution is to have more faith. Now, do you see the connection? The last conference, April 2021, what was President Nelson's main message? I call upon Latter-day Saints to have more faith. Start today to increase your faith. Faith and prayer are the first pair. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to let set those aside and go to the next pair. And I love that this is three and four. I want to shout from the rooftops that prophets, seers, and revelators have declared that families will never be successful Without repentance and forgiveness. And I would say both gospel repentance, where we repent of our transgressions against God, and marital repentance and family repentance, where we repent of my actions against a spouse or a child. Families don't work unless you say, I'm sorry, when you make a mistake. That's third on the list. You have to be willing to say, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Please forgive me. We have to repent. If I said something harsh, my greatest duty is to repent of that and seek forgiveness and reconciliation so that we can be a strong family unit again. It fascinates me that when the Lord talked about unrighteous dominion, do you remember back in section 121? He says, we can receive the authority of the priesthood, but when we undertake to, and he listed a couple ways we exercise unrighteous dominion, and the first one was to cover our sins. And now he's saying, you're never going to be a successful family, you're never going to be a successful marriage unless you repent. Mistakes you're going to make, but hiding them, covering them up,
1: that is. Is what destroys families the opposite is the way we save the family is forgiveness and the whole time you're talking i'm thinking about the second half of genesis the beautiful embrace of joseph and his brothers At the at the end to me is the quintessential essence of what it means to come into jesus that embrace is what i foresee it will be like when we come to jesus and i'm grateful frankly for some of these examples in the old testament because as you were talking I'm thinking, Bryce, there's so many of these messages in church history, but they're outside of the text. And then you have Nephi, and he's always forgiving, but we don't have that beautiful reunification of Nephi and his brothers. But I see the Book of Mormon as that invitation of let's put everything back together. And so I like what you said when you said these are declarations that are very clear and distinct. And the beauty of this proclamation is we've now tied
0: all these other gospel messages in the book of Mormon in the old testament where we're going to go to say do you see that families only work when we repent and forgive. And I love that you're just you're all of a sudden thinking mike about examples of family forgiveness is there in there? They're all over the place. Now, back in section 64, Mike and I spent a lot of time on the doctrine of forgiveness, that the Lord declared two truths when he said, forgive everyone. Number one, if you don't, you're going to get hurt. An unforgiving heart is going to cause you pain, not the person you're failing to forgive. It's going to cause you pain. And then number two, he says, you commit the greater sin. And we went to that parable of the unrighteous servant who was forgiven the $22 billion debt from the king. The king forgave him a $22 billion debt. And then he went out and found fellow servant number two who owed him $10,000. And he couldn't let go of the $10,000. And guess what it cost him? Holding on to a $10,000 debt cost him his $22 billion debt back. Now, take that into the family. The closer we get human beings together, the more they're going to bump against each other. No one loves my wife more, but unfortunately, no one hurts my wife more than I do. I am in the inner circle. And when human beings come together, we bump into each other. And family bumps into each other the most. If you think about it, we can be harsher to our family members than to complete strangers. Have you ever found yourself yelling at your children and then the doorbell rings and you go put on this amazing happy face and it's the neighbor and you're so kind and so loving and you were just so harsh to your own children? What this is saying is, Let's bring the gospel concept of repentance and forgiveness into the family. Let go of the $10,000 debts. The worst thing that husbands do is when their wife makes a mistake, they remember it and they put it in a quiver so that someday when they need it, they can pull it out of that quiver and use their bow to shoot their wife through the heart with some past mistake. How many times as husband and wife are we throwing daggers at each other that were the other person's past mistakes? And that's what ruins marriages. Forgiveness is the antidote. True repentance and forgiveness. Everything Jesus taught about forgiving others needs to first and foremost be applied in our families. The person I should forgive the quickest is my spouse and then my children. I should be so quick to forgive my spouse and my children. And yet the reality is just the opposite, right? Because of the proximity, because human beings get close and they bump into each other, I find myself being slowest to forgive the people in my inner circle and quicker to forgive complete strangers. And the point here is, The person I should forgive the quickest is my spouse. I should have a very short memory with her transgressions, and I hope she has a very short memory with mine. So there's two pairs, right? We've got faith and prayer. They go together. And then the next two are repentance and forgiveness. They go together. Now comes a trilogy. And I'll be totally frank. I have spent hundreds if not thousands of hours inside this triangle, trying to understand the relationship between them. I'm going to make a personal declaration. This is not a declaration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm going to make my personal declaration that respect, love, and compassion together are charity that when the gospel speaks of charity, that charity is this triangle. Respect, love, and compassion. So let me break those down. Let's talk first about respect. And I want you to imagine I'm holding a dollar bill in my hand. Now what makes that worth a dollar? It's a piece of paper, it's got some ink on it. The paper and ink aren't worth a dollar. So why is it that that piece of paper is worth a dollar? It's because the government tells me that they acknowledge and stand behind that piece of paper as being worth a dollar. And that we as a society accept that. We accept the declaration of value. And notice this. What happens if I were to add a zero to that dollar? Or what if I were to add another zero? Now it's a $100 bill. What if it had three zeros and became a thousand dollar bill? What if it had six zeros and I'm holding a million dollar bill? Tell me how I treat a million dollar bill. As my accepted value of that increases, I treat it differently. I would never wad up a million dollar bill and throw it in my pocket. As the value increases, so does my treatment of it. And so here we have Heavenly Father saying, can I tell you what each human being is worth? I'm going to turn to the Scriptures, and I'm going to give you three declarations of the value of every human being, the value of your spouse to God, the value of that rebellious teenager who often yells, you're the worst mother in the whole world. Let me declare the value of that teenager to God. I'm going to start in Doctrine and Covenants section 18 where the Lord says, hey, remember that great is the worth of souls. But then he tells us how worth a soul
1: is. You know why you're turning there? I think the Western value of the individual springs from this doctrine. I remember reading a book called What's So Great About Christianity, and he comes from India, and he talks about how his family clung to Christianity when it was introduced by the Portuguese. And one of the things that was fascinating to his ancestors was this notion that the worth of souls is great. Even people that society considers lowly, they're considered worth much, so much that the Son of God died for them. And that comes from Christianity. That's embedded in Enlightenment thinking and Western thinking, the value of the individual. And I'm grateful that this is in Doctrine and Covenants section 18. So take it away. Tell, show us where you're going with it. So this. verse 10, he says, remember the worth
0: of souls is great in the sight of God. And then the very next sentence, for behold, the Lord, your Redeemer, suffered death in the flesh. So what is one soul worth? That's the value. Jesus' life. There's that beautiful verse in Moroni where he says he would have done it for one soul. He would have given his life. He would have endured all that agony to save one soul. That's what one soul is worth, the suffering and death of the Savior.
1: It's reminding me of the verse, the least of these, if you've done it unto the least of these. So what is he saying?
0: That's it. It's the worth of the soul. And then the next one I love is he says in verse 14, go cry repentance unto people. And then 15, if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people and bring one soul. Is it worth it? Is one soul worth an entire lifetime of labor? That's what a soul is worth. It's worth the death and suffering of Christ. It's worth an entire lifetime of labor to save that one soul. And then Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 is going to give us another one. Starting in verse 25 of Matthew 16, For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. And then this declaration, What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What's a soul worth? More than the whole world. Now put those three together. That spouse that you just fought with, what's that spouse value? More than the whole world. Do you see it? To see it is respect. Respect is to see the value that God has placed in every human soul. I see it. I see you. One of my absolute favorite moments in the Savior's life is Luke chapter 7. Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus over to eat. He didn't treat him the way most hosts would treat him. He didn't give him a a bowl of water to wash with. He didn't anoint him with oil. And then comes in a woman that's a sinner. Now, listen to the exchange between Simon and Jesus. I'm going to read Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, let's be clear, she is a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the meat at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now watch what Simon sees. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it. I'm going to emphasize that word. He saw it. He didn't see her. He saw her sins. He saw it. When he saw it, he spake within himself, saying, "This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman that is that toucheth him, for she's a sinner." And because he saw it, he minimizes this woman's value. You, I can't believe he's touching her, or you, I can't believe he's letting her touch him. Now, notice Jesus, verse 44. He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, "Seest." Thou this woman. Simon saw it. Jesus saw her. That's respect. When you look at your children, do you see the behavior? Or do you see them? To see them is to respect them. When you look at your wife, do you see her or do you see her body? Do you see it or do you see her? Do you focus on the words people say to us and the actions or do you see the value that God has placed in them? I see how incredibly valuable you are, and I consider it a privilege to be near you. So there's one. There's one triangle of what I would consider charity is respect. Okay, number two is love. Now, love is a funny word in English because we have one word for love. The Greeks had four. That's better. But even that isn't enough. Four words can't describe all the things we attribute to love. So I want to talk about this version of love. Human beings often assume that love is a feeling. I feel love. Now, certainly it's tied to my feelings, but love is not a feeling. Let me read from C.S. Lewis. He said it better than I can. So I'm just going to quote C.S. Lewis because I love this definition. He said, being in love is a good thing. Do you remember that feeling when you fell in love, that emotion? Being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. There are many things below it and there are things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied to last on in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean, quote, they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they got married, then it says what probably never was nor ever could be true and would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendship? Mike, what happened to your grades when you were falling in love with your wife?
1: I did not go to all my classes. <laughs> I and didn't And my either. grades slipped. You remember when you got married and all of a sudden you could focus better? Yeah. Anyway, I just to those of you, if you're out there and you're dating someone and you're engaged, I feel your pain. Hang
0: on to what we're about to say.
1: because It's like says, you can't think, right? Yeah.
0: What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships, your grades? But then he says this, this is back to C.S. Lewis, but of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Now he's going to define this other love. Love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love is not merely a feeling. And I'm glad he said merely because there are feelings associated with love, but it is not merely a feeling. And then he defines it. It is a deep unity. Maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. Love is a choice. Love is I choose to be united with you. I choose to be on your team. Love is a choice. I'm with you. I'm in. Love isn't an emotion. Love is a choice. It's a determination. It's a willful determination to be united with someone and make that my habit. He then says, they can have this love for each other, even at those moments when they do not like each other. They can retain this love even when each would easily have allowed themselves be in love with someone else. If love were emotion, then what happens when I'm angry? I would no longer be in that state of love. But love is not an emotion. Love is a choice. I can choose to be with my wife and to be united with her and serve her and focus on her even when my emotions are anger. C.S. Lewis says, being in love first moved them to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep that promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. And I love this definition. People get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they are not... They think this proves that they've made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. If you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of happiness. What is more, the very people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the longer lasting happiness are then most likely to meet thrills in some quite different direction. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It's simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go, let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter happiness that follows, and you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that we find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all the time. Allow an analogy, and Ashley, forgive me, I don't mean to call you out on this, but my oldest daughter, when she was a teenager and had some babysitting money, which did not come easily, wanted to spend $25 on a non-correction pair of glasses. The idea of wearing glasses was really cool to her. She was in love with wearing glasses. And she found a pair of non-prescription strength glasses and she thought she looked so good in them, she spent $25 of her babysitting money on a pair of non-prescription glasses. Now tell me how long it lasted. Now there are those of you who wear glasses every day. She was in love with her glasses. Those of you who wear them every day love them. You may not like them, but you love them. You're committed to them. You willfully choose to put them on even when they're uncomfortable. That's very different than a teenage girl who fell in love with a pair of glasses, paid $25, and then after a week never wore them again. That's the difference of being in love versus love. You see it in missionary work all the time. Some people fall in love with the church. They fall in love with Christ. But then when the realities of gospel living hit, they don't love Christ and they don't love the gospel, so they fall away. It's true in our lives and in our marriages and in our families. Love is not an emotion. Love is willfully choosing to stand at her side every day love is choosing to unify your life with theirs that's love so there's two on our triangle respect i see your value number two i commit myself every day every morning every night i choose you the third one is compassion Let me show you perfect compassion. Now, Mike and I have talked about Alma chapter 7 many times in our podcast where Jesus suffered every single human pain, every affliction. We speak of the atonement in terms of infinite breadth and infinite depth. He has, in essence, broken every bone in his body as many times as you can break. Infinite ways he's broken his bones. He's experienced an infinity of different human pains, and he's experienced each one of those pains, not for a brief second, but for an infinite amount of time. Every affliction, everything that afflicts the human being. Jesus, in essence, has been infinitely depressed and had infinite variety of depression. He's had every form of anxiety. He's had every single operation, and it's lasted for an infinite amount of time. He has struggled with every single human condition. Now why? The last part of Alma chapter 7 verses 11 and 12 is why. That his bowels may be filled with compassion. I know what you're feeling and I can run to you because I feel what you're feeling. Compassion is the ability to feel and relate and understand what someone is going through. And if you have compassion, you don't brush it off. You not only know how to comfort them, but you know why to comfort them. You know what to say, you know how to say it and when to say it and where to say it and who should say it because you've been there. Now, as a father, I am supposed to have compassion for my children. So, what do I do when I don't feel what they feel? I ask Him for it. Respect, love, and compassion are charity. That's my definition, which makes this verse in the Book of Mormon so significant. Moroni chapter 7 we are told to plead unto the Father with all the energy of our soul that we may be filled with this love. Ask for charity. Ask for compassion. Ask Heavenly Father to help you feel what your spouse is feeling or what a child is feeling. And then do everything in your part to understand that. Talk, ask, research, ponder. Do everything you can to feel what your child or your spouse are feeling. For example, when your 15-year-old daughter tells you that the boy she really likes doesn't like her, what do most fathers say? Hallelujah, right? I don't
1: have a lot of compassion. There are some things that are a gift of the Spirit, and quite frankly, I think there are some things that are just a gift that mothers have. I don't know how you are, but if my kids want compassion, they're not coming to me, right? right? And so for me, I'm going to have to pray for it, but yet for my wife, it's just natural. I I don't know. Are you that way? Yeah,
0: for me, when my 15-year-old says this boy doesn't like her, I'm like, yeah! I'm so glad he doesn't like you. That's not what she wants to hear. And yet for her, it's the end of the world. And my appropriate reaction should be to jump into her emotions and to say, what is she feeling? And then I have compassion. And when I have compassion and respect and love, you can imagine how that relationship is going to go. And that's why I love that trilogy. I wish we could take more time, but would you ponder this week? Respect. I see you. I see your value. Love. I choose you. I willfully choose to unify with you. And compassion. I feel what you feel. And it fills my heart with compassion. I love those three. And I think we as a church need to do better in our homes, in our marriages, in our communities, in our wards, in our stakes, in our professional life. We need to respect with greater intensity the value that Heavenly Father has emplaced in every single human being, especially those in our inner circles. We need to choose to be with them, willfully choose and make it a habit. And we need to do everything we can to feel what they feel. It may not be important to you, but it's important to them. And when you feel what they feel, you'll have compassion. The last pair, so we've got faith and prayer go together. We've got repentance and forgiveness go together. We've got respect, love, and compassion are a triangle that I suggest make up charity. And now we've got the last ones. Work and wholesome recreational activities. Can I just say it? Work and play. Work and fun. Work and rest. Now, we're going to save this one for the Old Testament because the very first commandment that God gives after He creates the earth is, I command you to work and rest. Not work or rest. I command you to work and rest. And sometimes we get that out of balance. There are some people Heavenly Father needs to say, you need to work more. Some marriages need to put more work into their marriage. Other people need to rest and play more. There are some marriages that need more rest and play and wholesome recreational activities. And it's finding a balance. That's why I love that the last two are a pair. It's finding the balance between work and rest. I'm going to leave these two with that wonderful little episode Jesus has with Martha and Mary. He comes into their home. Now, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were dear friends of Jesus, and he comes into their home often. And one time, Martha is scrambling, trying to get the house ready and presentable for guests. Now, I know every one of you can understand that. If Jesus were coming to your house, you would frantically get ready. When Thanksgiving rolls around, don't you frantically get ready for all the guests that are coming. Martha is getting ready for the guests to come,
1: and Mary's not helping her. Bryce, so she... I just got to throw this out there, too. Like, she doesn't have a sink with running water. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That just... was a lot of work. So listen to what Jesus said.
0: We're going to Luke chapter 10, 38-42. And please pay attention because I think we throw a word in here that we shouldn't throw in. Martha was in the house trying to receive them. Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. Verse 40, Martha was cumbered about much serving. Her work was cumbering her. She was overworked. And she says to the Lord, Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve? Bid her help me. Jesus double names her, Martha, Martha. Thou art careful. Now, if you look at the footnote, it says worried. Thou art worried and troubled and cumbered about many things. Now, I think we read this last sentence incorrectly. I think people think he told Martha that Mary has chosen the better part. That's not what he said. Work is not less than rest. Rest has a time and work has a time. But Martha was overworked, and he says, one thing is needful. Right now, Martha, one thing is needful, and that's more rest. And it's not always the same thing. To someone else, he probably would say, one thing is needful, and that's more work. If you're not working hard enough in your family or in your relationship, he would say, one thing is needful, and that's to work more. In this case, she was overworked. So he said, one thing is needful and Mary hath chosen that good part. So whatever is needful, choose that part. If in our homes, it's all work and no play, it's going to be out of balance. That doesn't work. No pun intended. But if it's all play it doesn't work. Family and relationships require a balance of work and rest. And so there are the nine principles. Now, if you ask me what is the most important portion of the proclamation, there it is. If you want to avoid the calamities that are coming, if you want to avoid the disintegration of the family, faith and prayer and repentance and forgiveness and respect and love
1: and compassion, and work, and play. Yeah. So if you're sitting here listening to this podcast right now and you're thinking, okay, I hear what Bryce is saying, but how do I do those things? You could just take that sentence and use it as a springboard for a marvelous discussion on how it works in the lives of the people that you're teaching. And I think that way it would invite a lot of participation, I know for me, when I'm sitting in classroom discussions and sometimes I hear how someone else applies a verse of scripture or how someone else applies prophetic counsel, for me, it opens up my mind to other ideas because I think, frankly, we need each other. And in the church, we need to hear how it's working. And if it's not working, sometimes what we just need is just to see it in someone else's life, see it illustrated or ways that it works, and hopefully you can take these ideas and Have a conversation where you can see how it works in people's lives. Ask them, what is respect? And how could we as a family increase our respect
0: for each other? Where do we show a lack of respect? I think those are wonderful conversations to have as a family. What is compassion? My father imposed a lesson that changed my life. My sisters had a zillion stuffed animals that they would put on their bed in a perfect order. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever. So I'd go in there and I'd mess the animals up. And I loved to tease them by messing up their animals because I didn't see any value in their animals. And my dad imposed a rule that changed my life. He said, in this family, we're going to treat each person's possessions the way they treat that possession." Which meant, Bryce, you have to treat stuffed animals not according to the value you see in them, but the value your sisters see in them. And that was a tremendous lesson on respect. Have those conversations. As a family, define what does it mean to have faith? What, how could we increase our faith? How could we pray better together? How could we increase the repentance and the forgiveness in this family? How can we as your parents show more respect and compassion when you're struggling with something? Help me feel what you're feeling. And we have these conversations. We need more faith, more prayer, more repentance, more forgiveness, more respect, more compassion, more love, more work, more play. Those are the keys that open the success that the prophets, seers, and revelators are begging that we open in order to avoid the disintegration of the family.
1: Excellent. And so with that, we're going to leave you today, but we just want to thank you for listening to the podcast and for sharing it with your friends, because... Being part of this together has really strengthened my faith, but it's also helped me realize that there's a hunger to get into the scriptures and see how they apply in our life. We're really excited next week to get into Moses chapter one and Abraham chapter three. The
0: missing first chapter of the Bible. Oh, if that chapter had never
1: been taken from the Bible, how this world's history would be different. It's going to be good. So with that, we'll leave you and make it a great week.